I think querying is its own form of torture. It is so hard. And anyone who's in the trenches right now, my heart goes out to you. I can relate to all the ups and downs and the mighty swings of hearing from an agent, refreshing your email again and again, or then promising yourself you won't, and caving, getting a rejection from an agent you had your hopes pinned on. It's really hard, and it also takes a really long time. The agent I have now initially rejected me, and she sent me the most beautiful rejection email. And within that email was a nugget of feedback. And sometimes you don't really get those, but when you do, you get an insight into what turned them off, what went wrong. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent for their business and writing career by learning how to blend business with passion. On Lit Match, we do that with a few types of episodes, literary agent interviews, as well as first chapter deep dive analysis and interviews with authors. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to guide you with your writing craft and navigating the publishing industry. Today, we're going to talk to a debut author. Her name is Megan Tady. I'm so genuinely excited to bring her to you today. Megan is awesome. In her recent book, Super Bloom, was published on May 2nd, 2023 with Zivi Books. So how cool that we're going to get to hear not only what Megan's path to publishing looks like, but also what her experience has been like publishing with Zivi Books, which I am so enthusiastic about. If you're unfamiliar with who Megan Tady is, she is a writer and editor running the company Wordlift, and her writing has appeared in the Huffington Post and Miss Magazine, among others. Super Bloom, as I mentioned, is her debut, and it published on May 2nd, 2023 by Zibby Books, and she's working on and also will be publishing her second book, Champions for Breakfast, in 2024, early 2025, with Zibby Books as well. Megan lives in Western Massachusetts with her family, and it is my great pleasure to bring Megan to you today. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really excited for listeners out there. I met Megan through Instagram as another listener introduced Megan as someone who would be a potentially great guest. And I did my research. I was like, yes, super excited to reach out to Megan and connect with you. So you have your debut Super Bloom that came out. And I am really excited to talk to you, to hear about your process, to hear about your publishing experience. And just grateful to have you here on the show with me. Thank you so much for reaching out. And to my friend, Carly, who reached out to you on Instagram and sort of was our little matchmaker. She's a member of my writing group and was super helpful and supportive through my, my publishing journey. So maybe one day she'll be on the show. You never know. <laughs> I hope so. You know, yeah. I think that's accountability partners and writing partners are so important in this process because... Writing can feel like a very soulless endeavor. It's, a, it's something that yeah. people can feel when you're actually at the computer. Can You can feel like you're alone. But when you have those accountability partners and those writing partners, you remember that you're not alone, right? It's true. You need that. It is, it's a hard industry and for a lot of different reasons. And it's also amazing. But be, to be able to text you know, your group and be like, oh, gosh, I'm, 
I'm up against this today, or I had an amazing writing day, you know, to celebrate things together too feels really phenomenal. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to talk to you about Superbloom, about your whole publishing and writing process. So let's go ahead and get into that for listeners who are unfamiliar. This is Megan Tatey, and she is the debut author of Superbloom, which I was so excited to see showcased in my local bookstore recently. I just shared that with her off podcast. It was fun to see it up in front right after we connected too. So super cool. And I would just love for listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So can you tell us about your career path, what led you to writing and writing this story in particular? Sure. I've been a writer and a reader from a really young age. And I was always sort of holed up in my room writing stories. And my grandmother gifted me a typewriter when I was eight. And I would peck away at the keys. And I just had a wild imagination. You know, I loved playing in my backyard and just making up these huge stories. And when I got to high school, I joined the newspaper staff as a freshman. And I instantly loved it. I loved the fast-paced nature. I loved um, interviewing people and writing the untold story. I left high school. I went to college for journalism. And I graduated thinking I want to be an investigative reporter. I want to crack all these stories. I want to write for a you know, really reputable paper. It was at the time a bunch of newspapers were either consolidating or they were actually closing down. And digital news was sort of coming up and people didn't know how to monetize it at the time. A lot of places closed and a lot of newspapers were hiring. And there was a lot of community journalism that was happening that was great, but they were paying, you know, like 10 cents a word. So it was rough. And I had to do a bunch of other jobs to sort of sustain myself as a freelance writer. And I was waitressing. I was working at a Y. I was... Gosh, I I don't even remember. I was doing all sorts of things. And I was living in Western Massachusetts at the time. And I still do. And I would sort of take my lunch breaks in my car and with my little recorder. And I would do interviews of these stories that I was sort of pitching and writing and trying to sort of land these bigger jobs. And I had some moderate success with that working with and I worked with a another sort of news outlet. I went to New Zealand for nine months and did some work there. And then I came home and worked for a nonprofit in media and democracy issues. And I left that about 12 years ago. And I started my business WordLift, which is a writing and editing business. And I just saw a lot of really bad copy out there. A lot of really well-intentioned people, great at their jobs, could not write their own website copy. And I knew that my sort of skill at interviewing people and getting at the heart of what they do would really be an asset to figuring out how to write their copy for them. So I was building that business. And along the way, I loved books all along, but I I sort of imagined I would write a nonfiction book. And I just didn't have the confidence that I had fiction in me. I started taking some writing classes locally and just doing some short stories. And I was really enjoying it. And then about eight years ago, my husband took me on a surprise trip to Vermont where my book is set. And I went to a spa and I had a massage and we can talk more about that. But it was during the massage that I had this novel idea sort of just come flooding through me. I walked away from that weekend thinking, 
I'm going to write a book. And it was a really quiet thought. You know, it felt it felt so absurd to say, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to be a novelist. I just couldn't embody it. But I was sort of beginning to say it. And I went back to this writing class and started to write those first few chapters. Took about a year and had a finished manuscript that I began querying and heard nothing, which we can sort of get to. But yeah, that's sort of how I got to. Really cool. I love that you touched base on not knowing yeah. if being a novelist was the area that you wanted to pursue. And coming from a journalist background, that would make sense that your instinct would be, well, maybe I'm going to write a nonfiction book. But I get this a lot with writers. They feel like they might not have the chops to write fiction. And I always want to just call attention to that because I think that anyone can write fiction if they feel called to write fiction. Yeah. Just know that writing a book is hard, right? Right. So it's not going to be an easy pursuit, but it doesn't mean that you're not capable of it. So when you had this epiphany of this idea, and it was that inkling of, I'm going to write a book, what changed in you that gave you the confidence that you could write this, as well as the idea itself that you wanted to pursue? I think I was holding two things at once. And I think all writers do. And it's the ego and it's doubt. And so I had a ton of doubt, but also I had been a strong writer my whole life. And my whole young life, my high school years, my professional life was steeped in words and writing. So while I also had all this doubt, I was also like, how hard could this be? <laughs> and those two things were colliding. I wrote this first draft mostly on instinct uh, around what I thought a, a good novel would be. I think what became quite humbling is realizing that public, getting a novel published and thinking that you can do it, and, I, and anyone can, but thinking that it can be a success is sort of thinking that you can just like join the Women's World Cup team and be their goalie without ever practicing for years. And I hadn't been practicing. I, I didn't, my fiction, you know, it wasn't that strong. And after I queried, you know, and I heard nothing, which was quite loud, I had to really face maybe this, well, this isn't that good, or it's not as strong as it could be because it didn't land anywhere. And that's a quite frightening feeling, you know, like I maybe I'm not as good as I thought. And also the, there's the doubts kind of coming in. So they're both kind of duking it out at the same time. I have a really stubborn personality and a really driven one. Once someone tells me no, I felt like I just had to keep going and I really wanted to crack it. So my journey took eight years. That doesn't mean that I was writing this every day for months on end. Really, my, my business was ramping up. Then I had my daughter. And a few years later, I had my son. So I'm raising two young kids who are still quite young. They're four and seven. The pandemic happens, you know, like life is happening. So for a long time, my writing was sort of on the edges of parenting, running my business and trying to sort of like sneak writing into to my days. And I don't think it was until about 2019 when I really said, I'm going to really 
take this seriously, more seriously. I'm going to recommit to this book. I'm going to recommit to studying fiction in a different way. And I'm going to learn it. I can't keep going on on sort of instinct and what I think it should be. So it was literally years in before I started looking at three-act structures, inciting incidents. I took a class called How to Write the Breakout Fiction Novel. And, you know, it didn't mean I had to, you know, copy these other books, but I wanted to know why those books were working and I needed to know the rules before I broke them. That gave the pursuits, all of that, you know, I started, you know, the writing groups, listening to podcasts of other authors, that gave it, it created more seriousness in me. It actually created more value in my family structure because my husband, who's wonderful, we sort of said together, sneaking writing in is not what I'm doing. I'm a writer. And it took a while to say out loud that I'm a writer. It's like, And it's something my character, Joan, goes through in the book to sort of have my children begin to value that, my husband, my larger family, my friends, that I'm working on this novel and I'm not doing it on the side. And I'm really, we're sort of all valuing this pursuit together was a really key change in my mentality and I think my whole family's mentality. Yes, I think that's beautiful. I love that you shared that and I agree with you. I think that that is huge. You need the support in your unit and it does take time. And you do have to do the work and you have to figure out because all storytelling is patterns, like when it comes to fiction, but you need to understand exactly what you said, the rules before you break the rules. So I would love to hear, you've mentioned that you really started to commit and started to study craft. And then it sounds like maybe you decided when you would have made changes that could have gone a different direction. What were some resources that really connected with you? on a level that helped empower your story from the compared to the original drafts of it? And then how did you start to evaluate when you were going to make something unique or different about your story in order to make it really stand out? I began really seeking out stories of failure in authors. I think we are really hit over the head with the overnight success story in any industry. And when I had my sort of darker moments, I would say if I had any talent, I would have been swooped up right away. And, you know, why is this taking so long? I needed to hear from other writers how common it is to have a novel or more than one novel in a drawer. And that for many people, this this process is years long. And to not feel ashamed by the number of years that were going by, because I felt a little shame in saying, still working on it. And the only deadline that was out there was self-made. I had put it on myself. So I was really seeking out those stories and stories of resilience. And I was hearing a lot of those on the Manuscript Academy podcast, the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. And, and I was also really studying querying and, you know, how to get your agent, how to do it right. And the art of the query letter, whittling my, my letter down, you know, I rewrote that thing so many times. I also worked with a freelance editor a couple of times over the course of that eight years. And at some point around, you know, 2019, I was getting a lot of traction with agents who were requesting my full 
but no offers. And it was telling me that something was breaking down in the book. It's hooking an agent in the beginning, but I wasn't getting the offer and I couldn't see why. So, you know, I tapped some people, at, you know, freelance editors to come in and, and look at it and say, you know, you're losing this thread here. This part feels weak. You know, the, the messy middle was sort of what was happening to me. So that stuff was really helpful. Super Bloom is a book within a book. It's a nested story. So my character, Joan, begins to write the love story she wishes she'd had, you know, one, one with this happy ending. And for a long time, I just had Joan telling what that story was like. And I had seen examples of that done well in Lily King's Writers and Lovers and Emily Henry's Beach Read. I shared those pages with my writing group. And this is a testament to, to a writing group. You know, they came back and they were like, these pages are boring. They're, we don't like them. We want to see what she's writing. And I was so petulant because that was the last thing I wanted to do, like write this tiny story inside this bigger story. And her story has to have slightly different writing than my writing. And it has to hit some romance beats. I just was like, I can't do it. <laughs> but I went back to my computer and I started the first one. I can actually remember that night. And I realized it was quite fun. I realized that it did a lot for the book and it gave me more insight into Joan, who she is and how she would write. And I realized I didn't actually have to write that much of it. My readers wouldn't want to read and get completely invested in a really long story inside a story. So that was really key. And again, it was, I also think that that was a real turning point in my confidence as a writer, that I could, I could do it. I had been really operating on a scarcity mentality that I only had so many words in me and I was almost like bringing them out. I like, could I even get to the finish line? And that sort of was like, I actually doesn't have to feel scarce. It can feel really abundant and it can feel really abundant. And I can write a lot of stuff that I don't even use. And there's nothing, there's nothing wasteful in that. So that was a real, I think, turning point in my mentality fear as a writer, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. It's when the fear gets loud in our heads. That's what it's convincing us that we can't do it or when we have to stop. But you have to figure out the fear is a natural part of the process and understanding what you're afraid of so that you can overcome through resiliency. Like I love that you're seeking stories of resiliency. You are one now, right? So that's really exciting. We'll get into that process. Let's talk about Super Bloom. Because, hooray, this is so exciting. You have made it across the publishing finish line. And you're now into the publication of it. How rewarding. And I would just love to hear more about what this book is. In case readers are unfamiliar with it, I hope that you're not. I know that you'll be familiar with it now that you are going to learn about it and you should run out and get it. Go ahead and tell us what is the story. You've mentioned a book within a book. That is super complicated. I sympathize with you. And oh my gosh, I have to write that book in the book when you're already learning how to write the book. So bravo to you on mastering that. But tell us, what is Super Bloom about? What was your inspiration for it? And what brings it to life? Okay, so I told you the idea came to me while I was getting a massage. Basically, it was not a good massage. I was at the spa in Vermont and my body worker who was working on me was quite grumpy. 
and my face was in the face cradle. And the whole time I'm like, what is her story? And as a journalist, I love interviewing people and I love finding out like what's really going on. And so I began to wonder, am I her fifth massage of the day? What does she like it here? Is this her side hustle? What are the spa rules that bruise her? A lot of the reporting I had done was kind of had an economic justice lens to it. So I, of course, was sort of like, what's it like to be an employee at this mega spa? You know, are they treated well? I was just like, all these questions were going through my head. So that felt too awkward to ask her all those things. But I left there thinking, okay, I'm casting her as this brokenhearted woman who is about to lose her job. So that's basically Super Bloom is about my character, Joan, who works at a spa in Vermont. She's grieving the loss of her love, Samuel. And her and Samuel, it's been two years since he died, but they were only together for six short but very epic months. And she's about to lose this job. And the only way to save it is to get this glowing review from the most demanding client, which is a famous romance novelist named Carmen Bronze. And Carmen, you know, she comes into town, the massage goes, you know, off the rails. And uh, Carmen basically kind of bullies her into dishing dirt about the spot where she wants to set her next bestseller. And along the way, Joan begins to wonder if she should be the one to write that story instead. And chaos ensues. So, yeah, that's the story. And I did end up interviewing you know, some massage therapists that it wasn't that woman, but others about that profession and what it's really like. And I learned a lot and tried to infuse the book with with all of that. I'm immediately hooked. These are the type of stories that I love. What's one thing that you have said that just radiates is how this is going to encourage empathy in people. And I think that that's vital to what stories do. So maybe this is just you personally going there. I love that your reaction was not so much frustration with a bad massage, but a question of what's going on in this person's life. Because so much of life is that. Like we run into these people and if we don't ask that question, we close ourselves off to these amazing stories. Hence your inspiration for fiction. It's interesting that your journalists, your instinctive inquiry met a fiction take on what this story could be. So how fun, and to put it in a spa setting, that's fun. How is everything going with touring with the book? How has your experience with that been? What has it been like completely a new experience to you? Is it unexpected? Is there anything that you've run into that you've really enjoyed? So my publisher's a newer imprint. They're called Zibby Books, and it was started by a woman named Zibby Owens, who runs the podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And she's amazing. And surrounding her is an incredible team. And they have planned an incredible tour for me. So I've been bopping around. My book was published on May 2nd. And I've been, I just got back from LA a few days ago. This is all brand new for me. I, I've been a really nervous public speaker since basically the fifth grade when I tried to give a speech to to be a student body president and I just bombed. And so I've had this view of myself as a really like frightened of, of public speaking so much so that like even in in like a, I don't know, really benign meeting, once it becomes formal and you have to kind of go around and introduce yourself, I feel panicked. So I've had to really 
work on that. You know, you kind of forget when you're this sort of shy writer who's been working for years alone that when your book gets picked up, you're going to have to then go promote it. And it's a different skill set. And to really prepare myself, knowing, knowing this, I actually started gathering some friends. I have a studio space in an old mill building down the road. And I started holding these art salons where I could read my book out loud. And I was literally shaking the first time. And my friends, I mean, it was a really vulnerable and wonderful moment. And my friends, there was like 20 people. And I specifically wanted a larger group. And I was like, you guys, I'm, I'm so scared. And I just did it. And I got through it. And I felt so elated. And I did it again. And I was sort of like, okay, I'm getting there. And I'm finding myself enjoying it more than I thought I would. I'm also very aware that the sort of level of adrenaline and I'll have people be like, hey, I had no idea you were nervous. And I think what I have to do to sort of jump over that initial fear is a lot. And so learning just how to take care of myself after the events, how to come down from it in an easy way or you know, fall asleep in a hotel room. I'm learning that. And I think that's going to you know, be something that evolves. I'm also learning that this is a little like gigging. Some of the events are packed, especially when I'm paired with a really well-known author. And sometimes I'm sitting at a Barnes & Noble signing table for two hours and I've barely sold or signed any books. And they're running the gamut and they're swinging wildly. And how to sort of hold steady in the middle of this experience where it feels like there's a lot of highs and lows. And one day you're getting an award and the next day someone else is on a list. You sort of think that like the rejection's over, the hard stuff is over once you're published, but it continues. It's your art. We're sensitive people as writers and the publishing gauntlet requires a lot. Learning how, and again, this is still evolving, to like stay grounded no matter where it's kind of sending you is it's going to be a journey of its own. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your vulnerabilities with us because I think a lot of writers are in your boat. Like, you know, a lot, a lot of people who are writing are also introverted and public speaking is something that you have to do along the way, right? But it's a challenge. One thing that I just want to reiterate for listeners, I love that Megan faced her fears by immediately putting herself in the position that she was afraid of and that you asked for a big group. Because I think that the more experience you have doing something, just like writing, the easier it will become, hopefully, right? Like it doesn't mean that it's necessarily ever going to be easy, but hopefully that process can become easier. So I love that you did that. And what wonderful support that you've had from City Books. I would like to talk about your publishing experience because your publishing story is a particularly cool one. You are with City Books, and I would just love to hear what was your experience like? You mentioned that you had a bout of rejections, that you had to go back, that you really worked in your query letter. So give us the inside scoop as to what your experience from querying to publication was. And any ups and downs that you'd like to share about that would be wonderful. I think querying is its own form of torture. It is so hard. And anyone who's in the trenches right now, my heart goes out to you. I can relate. 
to all the ups and downs and the mighty swings of hearing from an agent, refreshing your email again and again, or then promising yourself you won't, and caving and getting a rejection from an agent you had your hopes pinned on. It's really hard. And it also takes a really long time. The agent I have now initially rejected me and she sent me the most beautiful rejection email. And within that email was a nugget of feedback. And sometimes you don't really get those. But when you do, and you get an insight into what, what turned them off, what, what went wrong. It's so helpful. And she sort of said, I think your character has a stakes issue, meaning the stakes aren't high enough. And she was like, I can't crack it. I've tried, actually. I'm reluctantly passing. So I cried. And then I took it to my writing group. And I was like, all right, ladies, I've got a stakes issue. And I worked on it again for another, I think, nine or 10 months. And I didn't have to make sweeping changes. It was actually quite subtle, but I felt like I was getting it. So I actually went back to her the following fall and I said, hi, it's me. Remember me? Would you be willing to relook at my manuscript? And often once it's a no, it's a no. But she said, I'm so happy to see your name pop up. Yes, send me your manuscript. So I sent it to her and I was very excited. Meanwhile, four months go by. And again, if you're querying, this is normal. And it takes a really long time. So four months go by and I'm watching this new publishing company sort of like just burst out of the gate, Zibby Books. I had been watching Zibby for a while and listening to her podcast and I was really impressed. I also so happened to have a cousin named Claire Bidwell-Smith, who's also a writer, and she had just sold her second memoir to Zibby. And a lot of times this business is connections. You also can't use those very often. So I was really nervous. It was around Christmas time and I contacted her and I was like, how would you feel about introducing me? She wrote back and was like, I would love to just know that they've already rejected a few people I've sent their way. She connected us. I sent my manuscript. I was prepared for more rejection. About six weeks later, I got an offer. I was totally shocked. I actually have a picture of it because I was in a writing group on Zoom when the email came up. And so they have this picture of me hand over my mouth. So they were willing to look at it unagented, which is rare. And I could then go back to my now agent and say, hi, I have an offer. And I took that to a couple other agents as well, because you just never know. And I also know that some agents actually don't like it for you to ha get your own offer. You know, there's a, b a bunch of different reasons for that. So you never know how that's going to land. And she said, give me tonight. <laughs> and I, you know, she still hadn't read it. And however they do it, you know, she read it overnight and we had a great call the next day and she offered rep and the whole thing came together in one week after seven, it was about seven years at that point of, you know, a long journey. So I almost felt more excited about the agent than the, the offer because that's where my head had been for so long, but it was really exciting. And I knew, I knew based on that email from her with her kindness and, and also her really smart, astute take on my book that I wanted to work with her. I'm so glad I did. She sold my second book now to Zibby Books, which I've been working on and it's been a dream, dream come true. I love 
that you had both going for you. That's super exciting. Also, when you were deciding after you were given the yay offer of representation from your now agent, were there any questions that you asked your agent that really felt, you mentioned a couple of things already that made you know that this agent was the agent for you. Was there anything that you talked about specifically that were important for your career vision that you felt you clicked with? I had also listened to a podcast interview of her and I just, I loved her approach to books and I loved that she had a sense of humor and that she just felt really approachable. I think the biggest question, the thing that we were weighing was, I had another agent that was interested and said, I would want to take this book out wider. Would you do that? Zibby Books was still and is still, but especially then, you know, we hadn't seen an example of, of them publishing. And so it was all new. And my agent, Hannah Bradasani with the Friedrich Agency, they had never seen a book public. You know, they didn't have any authors through Zibby. So it was new for them. So I think we were really kind of talking that through. I didn't want to risk the offer because it'd been so long. I loved their commitment to authors and that they were doing one book a month. I think that was the biggest discussion we had. It was important to me that she, that they had co-agents in foreign markets, that they had connections to film and TV. It's not so important to me that I be able to contact my agent night or day. You know, like work-life balance is really important to me for them as well as myself. We just kind of met each other on those same wavelengths. But I knew that I, I want to be a novelist. Like I want to this, I want I feel like I'm just getting started and I want to be with an agent for a while who's kind of helping me guide my career. And she saw that too. And that felt really exciting. Fantastic. I love that you thought about what was really important to you and that you connected on those wavelengths. Let's talk about Zivi Books because Zivi is doing awesome things. <laughs> and I'm just so impressed and so excited. And one of the things you just mentioned is that their way of publishing is different in that they only do a book a month. But of course, that would rank up competition, but it offers, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, it offers a lot of support per author in helping them go through the whole entire publishing process, which can be very overwhelming to writers. So I would love to hear what have you really enjoyed about Zibby and Zibby Books and that experience? What has stood out to you? And you mentioned already, yay, another one. Your second book, Champions for Breakfast, is already even set to publish with Zibby Books in 2024. So already we're seeing a pretty tight turnaround between books where sometimes publishing can be a little bit slower. I think standard 18 months from once you sell your story to publication is an average amount of time. Go ahead, let us know what's it been like to be with, with Zibby Books and what do you look forward to as you continue to publish with them in 2024? One of the things I'm most impressed with with Zibby Books is the team and the creativity and innovation that's going into this team. And they're willing to sort of look at the way things have always been done and say, do we have to do it that way? Or is this just how it's always been done? For example, typically a book usually comes out in hardcover and then a year later comes out with a paperback. And they sort of said, well, why don't we give readers what they want right away? Because oftentimes, at least this happens for me, 
I feel sometimes priced out from a hardcover. And I say, oh, I'm just going to wait till the paperback. And then a year later, I, I forget and I don't end up buying the book. And so they sort of said, well, let's do this at the same time. And then readers can get the version they want right away. I thought that was so clever. They'd created this QR code on the back of each book where readers or prospective readers can scan it and then go into this portal of all this other new and really fun content. So again, they're just really willing to try new things. And they're also willing to say, actually, that thing didn't work. Let's try something else. They have started running these Zibby Books retreats. And they just had one in Charleston that I was at. And 75 writers and readers all came together for a few days. And there were panels of other authors and beautiful meals. And it was a total blast. And it was also so, so smart because it was the weekend before my book came out. And every person who attended got my book. And so everyone walked away as, I don't want to say mouthpiece, that sounds not right, but we now know each other and we're friends. We're connecting on social and they're posting photos and it's just already building early buzz. And that was so smart. And it was also from a humanity perspective, it was a really touching, wonderful couple of days that was so fulfilling to connect with all these people. I just feel like there's this camaraderie of the authors who are Zibby Books authors. We're connected on text chats and and we can reach out to each other because some of us are have published before and can say that's, you know, oh, you know, yes, that's totally normal. Or and some of us are new. And some authors have published with Big Five and can sort of say how good we have it, you know, because we can't compare it. I can't compare it to anything else. So they're sort of saying, yeah, it's rare for you to have six book covers to choose from and to be in that conversation. It's rare for you to get a book trailer when you're a debut author. It's rare that they're funding this tour and putting so much behind each person. So I feel really, really grateful and fortunate. And I feel really fortunate to be connected to my editor, Bridie. She's my acquiring editor. She's the first one who read it at Zibby. And she acquired my next book and she's amazing. And I consider her a dear friend. And there is a closeness that I don't think you would get normally. I mean, I crashed at her house after my New York events and we're up chatting. It's been a really amazing experience. The intimacy of that sounds fantastic. That sounds credible and like nothing I've heard before. I love that. I love the creativity. I love the continuing thought process about how we can make this better. You've mentioned now that they, they do connect you with an editor. So I'm assuming once they accept your book, is that when they connected you with your editor? And then what was your experience like with your editor? How did edits go back and forth? Yes, they have editors on staff on the team. And then sometimes they work with outside editors, depending on who is acquiring what. Bridie was the first one to read my novel and took it back to the team and was like, I love this and then got other people on board. And she was my editor throughout. I sort of reflect on my happiest, most joyful moments during this publishing process. I think it was when we were going through edits. I love getting edits. It's hard to get some of that feedback. But I really, all I wanted to do was make Super Bloom better. And I was so thrilled that I was no longer trying to impress anyone. And I wasn't trying to get the agent, get the editor. Now we were a team. 
And we were brainstorming together and she was giving me ideas. I was pinging ideas and it was a total blast. And I had, I just had such a joyful time doing the the bits of writing that I did that my book was fast tracked. So typically, like you said, 18 months and my book was coming out that year. And so it was quick and She gave me nine areas of focus. They were fantastic. And and the example is sort of like, this is a Vermont setting. I just want to see you dial that up. You know, people from Vermont want to see it reflected better. People who aren't from there want to go there, but like, give me more. So just, and that wasn't huge. That's just like sprinkles. And I just really trusted her. We had a really great time. This is so crazy, but I got a concussion right before my book was fully due. Like we got the copy edits back and we're supposed to be looking at the copy edits. And I had a horrible, horrible concussion. I hit my head on a playground structure while on vacation in Rhode Island. And I was like lights out for about a month. And it was very scary. And she would, we would have these 30 minute phone calls a day where she was literally reading me the edits she thought I would want to be flagged on and say, do you agree with this? And I would, I couldn't look at the screen. I couldn't look at the text and she would read them. And we would like 30 minutes because my brain would get too tired and we would end it. And we would do that all week. And I was so touched by, I know not every editor would do that. It was really time consuming for her. And I was so grateful. I fully recovered. But that's just like an example you know, and you just never know what's going to happen. And she she sort of got us over the finish line, which was amazing. That's one of the most amazing stories of support I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it was it, incredible. Yeah. I had three concussions back before. Like they also were saying, don't look at screens. But it was my senior year of high school and I had three in the year. Basketball related concussions. And it was it's yeah. I mean, it's I mean, you're foggy. I'm sure that you were dealing with frustration with that at the same time trying to prioritize your health because you need to but feeling the pressure of your book deadline to have that editor support wow I mean that is just absolutely astounding that's tremendous and I can understand especially why you would consider your editor a friend as well like you know lots of companionship there when you were making edits with Bridie versus the freelance editor you mentioned before Did you find that the freelance editor was more when you were still dealing with like big structural issues and then later it was sprinkles of things like Vermont and tastes like that? Did you find that overall in general, that's how it was with your editor once you were with Bridie? It was more about making the magic come to life in little ways versus in the beginning when you were learning more the craft, it was more of, like you said, overhauls in a way? Yeah, it was. I think... Working with the freelance editors felt a little more prescriptive as well. It was sort of like, here's, you know, like going to a doctor or here's what we think you should do. And then that relationship is done. And with my editor, there was more back and forth. And when they, when I, you know, submitted my manuscript, it was the best shape it had ever been in. So it was, it was pretty solid, which allowed us to sort of fast track it. But she, I think, I sort of imagine it as like one of those like floppy like dolls that's like outside of a car place, you know, and that it was like kind of there, but it didn't have all the air it could. And she was sort of helping me like pump the air into it, like like fully 
flying around and being insane. She was able to sort of say, we need more of the dad character or we lose him. Like when we could talk it through. And the other part that was really key for Super Bloom is that it's a comedic novel. And we had to also de-funny the book. Really go through and say, what are the jokes that are really landing? What are the funny moments that really stick? And what are the things that we can lose? Because reading a book that's like witty, witty, witty is exhausting. And we needed to find the emotional calibration right. And so, you know, we had to kind of go through it and strip out things that just weren't as, weren't the, you know, the stars of the show. And that was great too. So again, a lot of it was like give and take, not huge structural things. We did rework some of the ending it still had the basis for what happens now, but it, it had to change a bit. It was funny when I first, my agent was like, great news. They say, is this going to be one round of light edits? And I was like, wow, okay. I don't know what light edits means. I was sort of imagining like, oh, okay, just like approve, approve, approve. <laughs> but it was, it was a lot of work because it was a really intense couple of months to get it ready really fast. But Again, it was also a total blast to be doing it. And I'm about to turn in my second um, manuscript. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunities she's going to see in it because I don't see them right now and how to make it even stronger. So we'll see. That was going to be my next question was, is Brady your editor for your next book as well? She yes. Is. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting too. With your agent, do you pitch your second book ideas to your agent before you went to Brighty or did you work directly with Brighty on pitching her your idea there first and then coexisting that with your agent? How'd that work? I did work with my agent on it. So my next novel is called Champions for Breakfast, as mm -hmm. you said, and it's about an estranged mom and daughter alpine ski racing champs who get stuck in um, a Swiss village when an avalanche socks in their town. I knew that I was having this mother-daughter story. And for a while, the reason for getting stuck in Switzerland was they were running some sort of am uh, amazing race type show. They were the contestants. And I really got feedback from my agent that reality shows don't sell well as fiction. Hmm. And that she had had another author do it. It just didn't sell well, even though her first book had. And she had seen that happen in other ways. So we kind of came back together to brainstorm. How then do they get there? And who are these characters? And my agent, I'm a former athlete. My agent is a former athlete. And we just had this really interesting conversation around being a competitive woman mm -hmm. and what it's like to be a competitive woman later in life, like in your 50s and your 60s and what it's like to be an elite athlete and then suddenly your life is done and how do you change that? So we just kind of were spitballing and came up with this idea together of this, these two women who were Olympians or about to be an Olympian, but the daughter decides to go to art school. And I was really excited about it. So while Super Bloom was sort of in the very beginnings of production. I tweaked what I had of that manuscript because I had written it as this reality show. I began changing it and we were not going to pitch to Zibi Books yet. We wanted to have a really solid 
batch of pages. We also, frankly, just wanted to see, we still hadn't seen how a book was published by Zibby Books. So we were kind of watching and waiting. My editor came to me and, you know, their roster was filling because they do only do a 12 books. And she was just like, I would love to see your pages. And my agent and I had a call and we were like, you know what, let's, let's do it. So we submitted 50 pages and that's, they ended up buying it on a partial. And I've been working slowly on it ever since. And this is a whole new thing for me, writing under a contract. It's unclear whether this will be fall of 2024 or whether it's going to be winter, spring of 2025. We're Mm -hmm. still kind of playing with that schedule, depending on once she reads it, how much work is required and where do we see this falling? We want to have a lot of lead time for it. So we'll see. How does it work when they, you say that they, they bought it on a partial do they do advances and royalties? So they'll buy it and you get, you know, with a with an advance, you get paid in three installments. Mm-hmm. One when you sign the contract, the next when you deliver the sort of final manuscript and the third upon publication. Mm-hmm. So that's how that is working. And yeah, I mean, it's a dream now that I'm working on my, my second book and that I was hoping for. You're a novelist, you know, like, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're a novelist. It's going to continue, right? Yeah. And did you travel to Switzerland for research on that no, one? No. And I, I've been before, but it was years ago. And I'm still debating, can I sneak in? And I don't even want to say sneak in. Can I get there? Um, <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. But I've done a lot of research and I've interviewed former Olympians and people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. live in Zermatt. And it's been awesome. Cool. That's really cool. Well, Megan, this has been wonderful. We are at the top of the podcast hour. So what I would like to do is now move into the lightning three. So at the end of every podcast, I do a quick lightning three. In the past, I've always said you can answer this in one sentence or less. Sometimes people elaborate. Most times people elaborate. It's a nice roundup of the conversation that we've had. And my first question to you goes back to stakes because you mentioned how originally when you had queried Hannah, that she had said, I love this, but there stakes issue and I can't figure out what it is. And then you went back to your writer's group and you fine-tuned it. I'm curious, what do you think are the main stakes in Superbloom? And what did you think was weaker in the beginning? And how did you escalate those stakes for the next drafts? In one sentence? (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Yeah, challenge accepted. I'm going to have to elaborate. I think in the beginning, my character Joan, so what if she writes a novel similar to Carmen's? What's the big deal? And so I had to actually have Joan withholding and even cribbing some of the information she was supposed to be giving Carmen Mm -hmm. and to have her scruples called into question a little bit. Mm-hmm. The thing that's also at stake for Joan, she's trying to overcome her grief. But beyond that, she's also trying to work up the courage to claim a life that she didn't think she was deserving of. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the main stakes for her is being able to do that. Excellent. Okay, my second question goes to querying because you mentioned how you had rejections, but also you had rejections based on partials and fulls. When you're figuring out how to write copy, when you were going through that query process, what were some big things that you noticed that weren't getting bites in your original query letter? And how did you fine tune it to move from rejections on a query to getting requests? 
I think that your query needs to read a little like back flap copy. It needs to move fast. It needs to be engaging, but it also, you don't want to get too clever. There is a sort of formula for these things that agents ask for, for a reason. So I think there were moments I dipped in and out of trying different things. Like I'm going to really wow them, dazzle them with my sense of humor in the beginning or something like that. And they just, they just want you to follow the formula because they're reading these all day long. So boiling it down to the essentials, reading it out loud, having other people read it to make sure there aren't mistakes because you've read it so many times and having it fun, moving fast and engaging like back flap copy was really key. Okay, two quick follow-up questions to that. Yeah. So the essentials, what do you think are the essentials in your back cover copy? And also from your final query that really started to get attention to the back cover that is now published on the book, were there a lot of differences between the two or was a lot of it carried over onto the final printed copy? My copy now that's on my book is different. I gave my editor and that team my query letter and I think mm -hmm. they, they pulled from that and tweaked it and used it. And that kind of then informed what they ended up writing. I think the essentials are... You can find this anywhere, the book hook cook type of thing of, you know, like how you structure it. But I think the essentials are, it goes back to the stakes thing. Why care? You know, so, okay, I have these really great couple of lines about my character and she's writing this novel based, you know, and this other romance novelist thinks it's her book. And, but like, why, why care? And so to have a sentence or two that can, really hammer that home, I think is key. And I think that that's the hardest thing to write. I can't even remember what my thing was, but to make the agent realize, okay, this book is doing something else on another level and I want to go there for that. Excellent. Thank you. And for your third and final question, I'd like to go back to Superbloom. I've heard this before from various writers and agents, uh, and I believe in it because I'm also a reader and a writer, they say that once you have published a book, that it's no longer the writers that it becomes the readers because the readers now going to embrace that story in the way that connects to them on a personal level. I'm wondering, as the author of Super Bloom, how do you hope your story connects to readers. I'm already hearing from readers, which is just the best, about a couple of things. One is that it's giving people who are grieving in some way permission to grieve no matter how long a relationship was, and that grief comes in all forms. I've also been really touched, and I've been hoping this would happen, that it's empowering people on their writing journeys. and whether I've had people say this got this is getting me back into writing, it's inspired me to get back into it, or I really see myself in Joan struggling to sort of claim that title of writer for myself. And I'm I am gonna do that no matter what sort of quote unquote success I've had with my writing so far. What inspirational moving feedback. Yay. Yeah, it's been great. This has really been an, a tremendous experience talking to you, Megan. I am so happy that I am here and able to hear your story firsthand and now get to share that with listeners. Thank you so much, Abigail. This was so lovely. I, this was one of my favorite interviews. It was so great. Thank you.
Thank you for coming back for another episode of Lit Match. I love talking to Megan and especially hearing about how she began her journey by seeking out stories of resilience and now is a testament of what a resilient writer can become, a career author, as she is today. I know that there are so many great tips that you can take from Megan, such a wealth of knowledge, and what a joy to be able to share her with you on Lit Match. If you have any author recommendations for Lynch, I'd love to hear about them. Please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I do take every email that I receive and any feedback that I receive seriously, as I want this to be an amazing resource for you in your writing process and take it on its path to publishing. If you'd like to support the show, thank you so much. The best way to do this is to take a quick one to two minutes and rate and review the show as well as share it with your writing and publishing companions. I'll be back next week with another episode of Lit Match, and I hope to see you there. Until next time, happy writing and continue to pursue your story. The work that you are doing is meaningful. Also, if you're in the query trenches, good luck and keep going. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business career and celebrate your book when it comes out.